Katie Herzog, my friend. How are you doing? Jesse, I am great because it is my favorite month of the year. June. June. It is Pride Month, which means I get to spend the next four weeks arguing about who threw the first pitch at Stonewall. Did you, you said pitch like it was a baseball game. Yeah, yeah. The first pitch, it was a softball. It was a lesbian and it was a softball. If memory serves, this was a softball game between the LGBT community and the police and whoever won. Exactly. And then every year in June, we recreated by arguing about if cops are allowed at Pride or not. Yep. That, that makes sense to me. Uh, so this must be, yeah, I can see how this is a very exciting month for you. Absolutely. It really combines my favorite things, corporate pandering, and internecine arguments about who was at a historical event 60 years ago, 50 years ago. The best thing about Pride or any other awareness month is you can shoot down arguments you find offensive by saying, I can't believe you would say that during blank month. Exactly. I cannot believe you would say this during Pride Month. So we are not going to rehash the who threw the first brick argument this year because we did it last year. We can include a link to the show notes from that episode if anybody is interested in hearing me rant about myths about Marsha P. Johnson for 15 minutes. (laughs) It's timeless. You you couldn't even... um explain your lack of interest in relitigating it without relitigating it. <laughs> yeah, it it is an interesting example of how like there are certain other sort of big social justice events where where mythology has overtaken reality and the resistance to like to factfulness is is interesting. But you can understand how like historically that moment is important for people and people might want to co-opt it. Lie about it. So Jesse <laughs> What podcast is this? This is Blocked and Reported. Uh, I'm Jesse Single. And I'm Katie Herzog. And today we are going to be talking about Andy No, who is, depending on you ask, a brave, fearless, truth-telling journalist or an alt-right provocateur. But first, let's talk about your Twitter hiatus. <laughs> I thought this would be too boring to discuss, but uh, yeah, it's slightly interesting what happened. Basically, in May... I was like, Twitter's destroying my brain. I'm I'm going to stay off it. I'm only going to promote my own stuff. And I actually mostly stuck to that, except for a couple times I, I, I slipped up. But I think I had like 86 tweets the whole month, which for, for addicts like us is nothing. Okay, fast forward to, uh, what day is it? Two days ago, recording this Friday, uh, June 1st. I'm like, I'm just going to go back on Twitter a little bit. I'm just going to spend 30 minutes a day on there. And see what happens. And if anything, I was so mad when I saw this. Because <laughs> you, okay, wait, explain. You wanted me back on just to get myself in trouble to provide shit for us to talk about. It doesn't just provide shit for us to talk about. It's also, I think, it's good for promoting the podcast. Every time you get into some dumb fight, we get more listeners and we get more patrons. So you neglecting to take care of this fundamental part of your job is costing us money. This is like vaguely reminiscent, or and during Pride Month. <laughs> Pride months. I'm I am hindering a lesbian's ability to make to do her job. This is a little You know what? Glad is gonna put you on a list for that. This is like if you had a friend who was just a train wreck alcoholic and he came to you one day, he's like, Here's my 30-day chip, I'm not drinking anymore. And you're like, But dude, this provided so many good stories for me and my friends. Yeah, you're like, let's celebrate. Let's go to the bar, buddy. Well, this is exactly what I'm doing. I'm trying to enable you. Luckily, it doesn't take that much to enable you because what happened when you got back uh got back after your hiatus? Nothing good. So so this is requires just a tiny bit of context, but there's a um, four-part HBO miniseries called Exterminate All the Brutes. It's a history of uh, white supremacy and colonialism. There was an Intercept article that included the following uh, very triggering to Jesse excerpt that I'm going to read to you. 
The Holocaust, Peck shows, was not an inexplicable outburst of madness unconnected to the rest of history. It was instead the logical culmination of the ideology of European colonialism and white supremacy. And then he he quotes from the um, documentary. So because I was back in being on Twitter mode, I immediately screen capped that and dunked on it very snarkily. I was basically mad that it's very much a straw man to suggest that anyone anytime recently thought the Holocaust was unconnected to history because it is very connected not only to then recent German history, but to like a millennia long history of anti-Semitism in Europe. Uh, that was Hitler marshaled this ancient, horrible hatred to horrific ends. And so to see the intercept, just just describing it as a logical, straightforward extension of white supremacy and colonialism pissed me off. I did a snarky tweet about that. This caught the attention of a very talented but very online New York Times opinion writer. I'm not trying to like start more beef, but he sort of snarkily quote retweeted. It was like, well, actually, this is a well-established theory of the Holocaust origins. Uh, Hannah Arendt posited this, as did this other theorist he mentioned. I quickly started getting shit from his followers. It was just like the same shit I've always gotten into where we were, we were totally talking past each other and the amount of like misrepresentation and misunderstanding. And I had done something like slightly shitty just by dunking. So at the end of the day, I deleted my tweets on it. I just did a couple tweets explaining like what had happened. And I, I said, I'm going back to the, to the May system. I'm just not going to spend time on Twitter except to promote stuff. But like sort of, it just made me think about like you have you have two professional journalists. We're both in envious positions. We get to write and say whatever we want. He's obviously he's higher profile than me. He's at the Times. It's just like this is all fucking bullshit because it it it's even what he said was bullshit. Hannah Arendt didn't just say it's a logical extension of colonialism and white supremacy. She said it also has to do with anti-Semitism. And they say that in the documentary too. So the intercept like really did sort of provide a crimped description of this. Then I responded to that angrily without watching the documentary or, or pointing out that blah, blah, blah. It's just like, how could anyone listen to what I just described and think that this is like a useful, a good use of anyone's times, especially people who like have platforms and can write whatever they want. So how can you argue I should be on Twitter when this is the kind of shit that happens? As I mentioned, it makes me money. But I, I think you're right. This is, it's mean, it's what should be media criticism, but meets play playground, like schoolyard playground bullying. Yeah. And, and you see this all the time. Both of us are totally guilty of it. But if you just step back a little bit, like sometimes it's just embarrassing. It's like, I think about like, what people who aren't hyper online would look at Twitter and see all of these adults just treating each other in ways they would never do in person, never do face to face because it's embarrassing, socially <laughs> unproductive behavior. But we're online, so we do it all the time. I guess at the end of the day, the only part of this that made me happy is I pulled up an article by a Holocaust scholar from 2013 that actually dug into the actual controversy in the field over how much of a role other forms of colonialism played. And that I actually found that gratifying to learn more about it. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. I'm not going to include a link to any of the Twitter bullshit, but I am glad um, to mostly be off Twitter. I hope I don't have slip-ups. If I have a slip-up, uh, people should let me know. Katie, I will not let you lure me back onto Twitter. I feel like you're going to like pay people to start fights with me or to slander me to get me back on there. That's actually a really good idea. Everybody send me your Venmo and tell me what exactly your plan is to lure Jesse back into Twitter. And if it's good enough, maybe I'll pay you. I think that's a good system. Uh, But yeah, and I should say like none of this has prevented me from, I can still open up Twitter to keep an eye on the shit we cover. So there's, uh, you can use Twitter without engaging. And I think that's the best way to do it. So 
So our show today is going to be mostly about Andy No. So for people who don't know, Andy No is he's a conservative journalist. He has a book out. He had a book come out last year about Antifa. That book became a bestseller after <laughs> <laughs> after after people <laughs> protested Powell's books in Portland for selling it after online. People did exactly what Andy No wanted. Exactly. Them to do. So Andy No is really really hated by a lot of people on the left. There's a few reasons for this. Some of it has to do with his actual behavior on Twitter. He posts mugshots of people who are arrested at protest, um, and he just posts mugshots in general. I I am totally opposed to that. We've talked about it in, in prior podcasts, so we don't really need to go into it. Just for the record, I don't think you should be posting mugshots of people, especially before they've actually been convicted of anything, even if they're arrested with a brick in their hand outside of the Starbucks. He's also been covering these Antifa rallies in Portland and Seattle. He probably should stop doing that because of what happened on May 28th. So the reason we are talking about Andy No today, the reason Andy No is back in the news is because he was, for at least the second time, just attacked at a protest in Portland. When this happened before, this was in 2019, um, some, some members of, I don't know if they were actually members of Antifa, but some, some protesters in Portland, uh, threw milkshakes at them. There were some reports that there were concrete in the milkshakes. I think those have been fairly debunked at this point. Yeah. Um, but they chased him. He fell. They beat him. Uh, he got a brain hemorrhage. He was harmed. So like physically, like actually physically harmed, not like harmed by words. So <laughs> it's not we have to specify that. But yeah, it's actually. Yeah, harm. yeah, yeah. So he moved to London. Uh, he was recently back in Portland. And on May 28th, he apparently attended a protest that marked the anniversary of the death of George Floyd. And he did this wearing like clad in like the Antifa costume. So wearing all black, he had a mask, he apparently had a, had a Black Lives Matter flag or something like this. This was a really bad idea. He was apparently trying to like infiltrate this group and report on them. Um, Andy Noah is very visible, even wearing a mask, he's very visible. And I'll just, I'll just read you a little bit of the reporting from the Willamette Week. A group of five to 10 people in identity obscuring clothing called Black Block followed the person they suspected of being no for blocks inquiring who he was. At one point, the person they pursued said his name was Jake. In front of the AC Marriott, the group tried to unmask the unknown man. He ran for blocks until someone in the pursuing group tackled him and punched him several times after he hit his head on the brick sidewalk. And this next paragraph, Jesse, just wait for it. A nearby man holding a skateboard admonished the group, saying that their quarry looked like he'd, quote, had enough. However, when someone nearby shouted that the person they were assaulting was no, the skateboard-carrying man changed his attitude, swearing and joining the group. These people are really sick fucks. And and later in the show, we're going to get into some of the context of how people have gotten so lathered up about no, but like, this is really, really sick. And uh, anyone who assaults someone on the street should obviously spend some time in jail. I'm very against incarceration in general, but like, this is really horrible. Okay, so most of our show today is going to be with a guest. You were not here for this conversation. We kicked you out. And the guest is a guy. This is not his actual name. This is a pseudonym. His name is Yassine. I'm not going to bother trying to pronounce the last name because as you will hear in the episode, I butcher it many, many times. Um, but... This is a guy who I met actually through Andy No. He is a defense lawyer. He's a former lawyer for the ACLU, and he also knows Andy. So he read Andy's book. He's going to give us a book review. You and I haven't read the book, but he did it for us. Um, and he's going to tell us about what it's like uh, working in these militant groups. He's going to tell us about Antifa, how it works, what his impression of it is. Um, and we're going to go into a bunch of other different stuff. 
one thing to note about this, this is there's some like jokes in here that are not going to make any sense if you didn't listen to our the last mu- episode. The muscle ones? Yeah. yeah. If you are confused about why we keep talking about how I've converted to Islam, that's because as I revealed in the last episode, I've converted to Islam. <laughs> the guy in the interview, Yassin, he is from Morocco. So he is an ex-Muslim, but this is this is the context. So just like this is <laughs> this is why. I'm, In, I'm Muslim inshallah, now. you will listen to the old episode and all will become clear to you. Okay. So, Jesse, any questions before we start the interview? No. I mean, in addition to the fact that I enjoyed listening to it, what I really appreciate is the search engine optimization work you, you did accidentally because we can honestly title this episode something like, A Gun-Toting Ex-Muslim Speaks Out About Andy No and Antifa. And that's a rare opportunity in terms of search engine traffic. Well, you're welcome for that, Jesse. So we're going to come back after the interview and discuss a few things, including an update to the Andy No story. So next up is my interview with Yassine. But first, a word for our sponsors. Katie, I don't know about you, but I've been spending a lot of time on the toilet lately. In fact, I spend so much time on the toilet that I've recently installed a desk in my... Katie, do I have to say this? Jesse, just read the script. I'm a journalist, okay? I can't lie. I have integrity. I've only been spending a normal amount of time on the toilet lately, like maybe six or seven hours a day. Jesus fucking Christ, I hate you, Katie. (laughs) I'm sorry to hear about your bowel trouble, Jesse, but I do suspect that your Hello Tushy modern bidet attachment has made the experience a little more bearable. It has, which is exactly why I'm excited about the Hello Tushy Father's Day sale so I can give my dad the same sparkling clean feeling. Dad wiped your ass for years. Return the favor with the perfect gift for Father's Day from Hello Tushy. Bring your pops into the future with the brand new Hello Tushy 3.0 modern bidet attachment. It's stylish, eco-friendly, easy to install, and will help stop him from flushing his retirement down the toilet. When we say anyone can figure this shit out, we mean even your parents. Yes, yours. The Hello Tushy 3.0 attaches to their existing toilet with no electricity, extra plumbing, or tech support FaceTime required. Plus, every Hello Tushy bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Dad already got a Hello Tushy on his pot? Blow him away with an upgrade to the new Hello Tushy 3.0. If he's new to the revolution, have him join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now for a clean butt with every flush. Give the gift of a clean butt. Go to hellotushy.com slash barpod to get 10% off plus free shipping. This is a special offer for our listeners at hellotushy.com slash barpod for 10% off. Hellotoshi.com slash barpod. Yassine Mishot. Did I get it right? Did I pronounce it right? Yeah, you got. You have to have the ch in there. Okay. Mishot. <laughs> Salam alaikum, my brother. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Let's start by introductions. Go ahead and tell me how you would introduce yourself. Hmm. Uh, so I think I. it's fair to say that I have... Um, a relatively unusual and overlapping cultural affiliation. Uh, my day job, I'm a public defender. Uh, in terms of politics, I'm basically a libertarian, similar to the uh, coverage that Reason Magazine usually uh, tackles. This is kind of fucking me up, though, because I consider you my anarchist friend. So you're saying you're actually a libertarian? Well, no, I can I uh, consider myself an anarchist, but with like libertarian tendencies. That's usually like the best summary to get at into like my general. Uh, political affiliations, but the, it's it's always hard to pin down. Okay, so let's describe your political affiliation. You're into guns. Yes, I fucking love guns. I'm a I'm really big into gun rights. Uh, that's definitely like a, a a significant aspect of it. I'm not into hierarchy, especially government authority. 
Uh, I'm generally in favor of just letting people do whatever they want. And if I was to describe an ideal, it's uh, it's like a paraphrasing of a Mao statement that says like let a thousand flowers bloom, but it's more like let a thousand societies bloom. Uh, but I'm into uh, allowing people to figure out how to best structure societies in whatever way that they can conceive of. Uh, generally in favor of decentralized uh, authority rather than concentrated authority. And that tends to flow out into a variety of uh, positions. So generally, I'm an anarchist, but with libertarian tendencies. But I'm a chameleon in terms of who uh, I affiliate with and who I spend time with. Right. Okay. So let's get back to your bio a little bit. So you're currently a public defender. And before that, you were? I used to work at the ACLU primarily focusing as an attorney primarily focusing on uh, abortion rights access. And you're an activist or were an activist, yes. which I guess gets how to how we met. Well, to back up for a bit, uh, given my fluidity in terms of political affiliations and my interest in guns, even though I would be more libertarian affiliated, I found out that, I guess prompted by the Trump administration, there were a lot more left-wing militant groups that started open carrying firearms at protests. And I was fucking thrilled by this because generally gun rights are conservative and right wing coded in this country. Uh, but that, but that doesn't necessarily have to be. And outside of the world, it's not. It's more kind of like a left wing thing. Uh, I mean, we can put this in the show notes, but there's an excellent essay called, uh, the rifle on the wall and a leftist argument for gun rights. And the elevator pitch is guns are power. Power is best widely distributed and. Therefore, guns are their uh, best wildly distributed as well. So that's kind of like the elevator pitch, the leftist position for pro-gun rights. But it doesn't show up that often in American culture. So my interest was in advocating for gun rights, specifically to demographics that didn't have an affiliation with it. So I found out that there were groups like the John Brown Gun Club who were anti-fascist, anti-racist, left-wing oriented that were pro-gun groups. And I desperately wanted to join them because I wanted to be an activist within that field. So so from the left-wing position of guns are power, how do you deal with gun violence in a a society where guns kill people? This is, you know, gun violence in America is, uh, is endemic in some places and not just murder, but suicide as well. So how do you deal with that problem? The the truth is that with every p- piece of power, there's some responsibility. And of course, there's some danger. Uh, you can uh, make an analogy to arguments against voting rights. Uh, if you say, you know, we should let people vote, there were always people that said, well, what if we they vote the wrong person in? Or what if they exercise that res- that power irresponsibly? And the response is, well, tough shit. That's kind of what happens when you give responsibility to people. Every right, there are trade-offs, and including my personal favorite right, which is free speech. There are trade-offs to free speech. As you mentioned, there are also trade-offs to voting. Donald fucking Trump was our president for four years. That's a real flaw in democracy. Well, I mean, if you want to use the voting analogy, you can say, well, uh, what about like aristocracy or what about feudalism or about monarchy? You're always going to find some comparison that perhaps is better on at least like one metric. Uh, it's never going to be a clear cut. Uh, for me, it's a, it's a devotion to a principle, namely that power is best in the hands of people. I recognize that I acknowledge that there's danger to that, uh, but that's not enough to uh, erase the principle. Yeah, I see what you're saying. 
I guess I would be more comfortable if guns were used to do things like overthrow the government rather than like kill children. <laughs> but you know, you know, there are there are trade offs for every race. I agree. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So you join the John Brown Gun Club, which is a leftist organization that uh, is is anarchist in nature. Is that correct? Yeah, it's anarchist affiliated. It doesn't really have like a a specific point of view, and uh, it. It was admirably, in my opinion, a relatively big tent. So uh, it used to be affiliated with the Redneck Revolt, and it would say on its website, you know, we don't care if you're a libertarian, Republican, socialist, Marxist, as long as you uh, hew to the principles that we uphold, you're welcome to join our uh, our group. And uh, even though it was a leftist group, I noticed that it was refreshing in that it lacked uh, a bunch of leftist drama that you often see, uh, especially like around identity politics wow that's that's actually shocking i was uh, genuinely shocked and I'm, I'm not exaggerating this uh we generally kind of got along with people and like kind of uh didn't get fixated on pointless or petty disagreements uh to give you an example we had a member that used to be uh, a border patrol agent uh there was like a very small minority of people that had kind of reservations about that but pretty much everyone else was uh into it because there was no question about the guy's adherence to our principles like he was into our mission uh we we you know we welcomed him with open arms uh so that was just like one example one literally yeah, open sure. arms. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was just one example uh it was relatively drama free i was a very prominent member uh we um i even showed up in the cnn episode by uh, kamau bell when he profiled the my particular uh, chapter uh, so I was heavily involved in them in a variety of ways. I, I was part of it for like um, like a year and two months or something like that. And I was and remain very proud of my affiliation and the work that I did with that. So I think to set the stage a little bit, I do have to talk about my opinion on Antifa. Uh, do you want me to explain what Antifa is or should I just assume? Please do. No, please do. <laughs> All right. So Joe Biden got made fun of when he said that Antifa is an idea. Uh, but I think he had a fair point because Antifa isn't really a cohesive group. It's more of a, you can say it's a movement that adopts certain tactics. And sometimes those uh, individuals that are part of that movement coalesce into specific groups, uh, they, but they tend to be very small and sporadic. Ostensibly it describes left-wing radicals engaging in street violence with the goal of fighting what they consider fascists or right-wingers. Um, if I was to steel man the mission statement of someone that is Antifa affiliated, it's that they're very, very concerned about uh, brown shirt movement taking over the country. Uh, and it's akin to an ex existential threat in that you want to avoid a Mussolini or a Hitler regime from taking over. And you want to make sure that they don't use street violence to achieve those goals. So ostensibly, it's a community defense that's meant to counter that. I have a lot of problems with Antifa, and I've always had. When I joined the, the John Brown Gun Club, I was very explicit with my opinions on Antifa. And to, to explain like what my position is, I, I have to kind of give an overview of how I approach philosophy on violence. And I think some of this you can actually apply to what you would consider cancel culture. When you're examining violence, you have to acknowledge that it's um, you know, one of the most crudest, most primitive, most primordial motivators of mankind. Uh, it's extremely destructive, obviously. Uh, by virtue of me being part of a militant organization, I didn't have 
I'm not a pacifist. I didn't have a categorical objection to violence. However, I do have a like a respect and admiration for it, or at least uh, a discipline to it. And so my philosophy is is structured in such a way that, uh, for one, if you're going to engage in violence, you should have like a goal in mind, something articulable that you can identify, uh, and that's to limit kind of like a uh, engaging in it impulsively and just to satisfy satisfy a thirst for for destruction. Uh, the second thing is you want to have some proportionality so that it doesn't become like a runaway train. And the third thing is you ideally want to have some humility when it comes to receiving and being amenable to feedback. And you can kind of see how this is this can apply to cancel culture uh, in some ways. So, yeah. So if you apply the, that rubric, which I think, you know, I made it up. I think it's excellent. But if you apply that rubric to um, to Antifa, I... I think it fails across the board. They're failing on all marks. Man. Yes, they on, get on, on many levels. So for one, it doesn't seem to have a goal. I mean, they, they claim that the goal is to prevent brown shirts, but operationally, the way they go about it is just kind of like random, chaotic, sporadic. Uh, you don't really know who is getting attacked and for what. Uh, there, was a, there was a guy in Portland who... Uh, almost killed a guy because he beat him in the head with a, a baton and he got six years in prison. And the guy he beat by any measure was, was like an innocent bystander that was just trying to help break up a, a fight. So to me, I just kind of wonder like, what, what the fuck was the point? Like, why did you do this? What did you hope to accomplish by that act of violence? And to me, it just seems kind of like baffling. I have no explanation for it. Uh, they also have like a very poor target acquisition and uh, there's a bunch of examples of this and it's kind of embarrassing how many crop up, but there was that Bernie supporter that got beat up because he happened to have be carrying an American flag at a, at a protest. Uh, and that was like sufficient enough to code him as fash by Antifa. So the chaos around it just leads to this like needless destruction that serves no purpose and can be even counterproductive. So describe what John Brown Gun Club would do at one of these rallies. And would you be there at the same time as Antifa? Um, from my experience, like observing these from a distance, it seems like John Brown Gun Club is more like a daytime thing <laughs> where you show up during the day and it's a, a bunch of people in sort of military, is it military gear or just like? I mean, it can be. Camo? Yeah. It was, okay. D describe the scene for me. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that the John Brown Gun Club did was uh, provide security at protests, and uh, part of it was just showing up in gun with guns as a way to mollify and provide like a blanket of calm in case there were right wingers who were also armed. Because there is a level of intimidation if, if only one side is armed. But if both sides are armed, there's kind of like a detente where uh, there's a mutual kind of like de-escalation happening on both sides. And this is in places where open carry is legal. Yes. Uh, which is, yeah, that's, that's correct. Uh, so we'd show up with sometimes, uh, you know, we were always armed, or at least you should assume that we were always armed. Uh, and sometimes it's only rare that we actually openly carried. And that was kind of like for special occasions we were okay. all excited about. Armed with what? I mean, we'd have long guns, we'd have uh, pistols, uh, uh, a lot of us had body armor. Uh, you know, we, we had we had all the equipment. I think of the difference between Antifa and John Brown Club, just not besides the fact that you guys open carry guns and the philosophies are different and the discipline is different, but also the costumes are different. Antifa, all black, and John Brown Gun, gun Club, much more beige. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sure. The fashion uh, fashion choices were different. Uh, a big distinction is that 
John Brown Gun Club never masked up. We never concealed our identities. Uh, we always heralded ourselves as an above board militant organization. There was no hiding from it. Like we talked to the media, we were very visible and very accessible uh, to anyone that wanted to seek us out, which is very different from black block tactics of, you know, uh, wearing unidentifiable clothing and masking up uh, so that you have a level of group anonymity. We didn't have that with the John Brown Gun Club. So going back to uh, December 2018, this was, uh, we were doing a, we were doing security at a protest where there were right-wing groups also protesting and they were like on either side of the uh, street. And uh, Mr. Andy No was there. And this was way before he kind of blew up and became a national figure. Uh, so he's just, you know, this like short Asian guy that happened to be at the scene. And I think someone might have, must have recognized him and identified him as fascist and Nazi. And so I didn't, I didn't see exactly what transpired, but what ended up happening was he tried to cross the street. Some protesters, you know, linked arms and started chanting, uh, Nazis go home, immigrants are welcome here, which is just really fucking funny <laughs> because most of them were white uh, and they were trying to block this, uh, this tiny Asian man from crossing the road. Uh, but what, was, what I found disappointing, and I still find disappointing, uh, was that members of the John Brown Gun Club also participated in blocking him, but the, there was a qualitative difference in that they had guns uh, slung over themselves. Uh, I didn't like that. I was very disappointed with that. I didn't think there was any reason to respond to a non-threatening individual that was just taking pictures and wasn't harming anyone. I didn't think it was appropriate to respond with firearms. So I expressed my disagreement. Uh, the group didn't want to, didn't agree with me. So I ended up resigning. And just again, to clarify, that was basically the only point of disagreement that I've had with the group or its members uh, in the entire time that I was uh, part of it. Right. So this gets to how we met. So I wrote about this. So this protest was in Seattle and I wrote a piece for um, a piece for the stranger about this. The headline of the piece, and we'll put this in the show notes, is anti-racist protesters harass gay Asian American journalists. And as you point out, the Andy No of 2018 was much less well known. Um, now he has like over 800,000 followers on Twitter. He didn't at the time have this reputation for well t well, to be fair, like those those accusations are extremely slippery exactly, exactly, exactly. so the rumor one of the rumors about Andy is that he gave a kill list to Autumn Waffen, which is a, a neo Nazi group that I'd never heard of. The reason you're laughing is because it's ridiculous. This is the appropriate response to this. This has been spread through the media by so many fucking outlets. And nobody has any proof of it. My guess is that Andy didn't know what off on was. Well, it's not. It's okay. Here's here's what I'll do. I'll try to like steel man the argument that Andy no gave a kill list. Uh, Quillette ran a piece where they identified some social. They did like a social media analysis and found that some journalists tended to follow Antifa groups. And they created kind of like a web of what you would consider like Antifa biased journalists or something like that. Uh, and they published that. Uh, Andy No was like the editor at the time of Quillette. He had no nothing to do with the article. Uh, and then Adam Waffen, which is genuinely like a scary group that has like is prosecuted and hunted down by law enforcement and has uh, committed uh, several murders, or at least its members have. Uh, they like made an, a video that you can't find any time, but it was called Sunset the Media, and they copied names from this Quillette article into their video. 
So that that's kind of the link. So right. like the accusation that Andy No provided the kill list to Adam Waffen is like technically true in like a very tenuous and bad faith manner. I mean, not really, because not if he had, if, I mean, do we know that he like edited no, he the didn't. piece or had anything? He was, to, he's been on right, the record. So, he, so he's not connected. This is just, he's, this is, I mean, you could say that like Claire and Lehman maybe, <laughs> maybe gave a kill list to Adam Waffen. Nobody says that. And for the record, I don't think, I don't think that's what happened. Right. It, it's right. like, it's the most ridiculous interpretation of this. And it's in, intended to be kind of just this, uh, pity remark that's like, oh, you didn't know that Andy No was bad. Well, did you know that he provided a kill list to Adam Waffen? Which, uh, if you actually know the details, is just funny. Uh, so I have no idea who actually finds it convincing. And to me, it just kind of, uh, you know, have heavily. That's the thing is, I think a lot of people do find it convincing. And there are, uh, there are, you can find like photos online of people projecting Andy No gave kill list to Autumn Waffen on the sides of buildings in Portland. It just becomes propaganda. People repeat it often, so often that it just becomes absolutely true. Okay. So there was that incident. And there was another incident, this other rumor that was widely published, like the Mercury published a piece on this, Rolling Stone published a piece on this, a bunch of other outlets did, that said that Andy was involved with a like an attack on an anarchist cider bar in Portland, because of course, anarch Portland has an anarchist cider bar. Um, and, and, and Robbie Suave at Reason did the breakdown of this. And, and the story behind this is there's basically like Andy's there with this group. And I don't think he's there as a member of the group, a conservative group. And I don't think he's there as a member of the group. He's there as an observer. And Andy does not really cover the far right at all. He only, like he's embedded, he's basically embedded with this conservative group. We know his sympathies from his coverage. Mm -hmm. We know that his sympathies lie more with the conservative group than when with the anarchists for sure. Like he doesn't cover right wing groups. You could also say the same thing about people who only cover right wing groups where they're not covering groups like Antifa. Andy definitely has a beat. He definitely has a bias. He definitely has a focus. Uh, that's not in question. Uh, to me, it never surprised me that when he's at a protest, he might congregate around the, the right wing groups such as Pay Proud Boys and Patriot Prayers. For one, they're not going to kick the shit out of him, <laughs> for one. Uh, and maybe, maybe they have some like sort of tacit agreement that he's not going to be, he's going to be protected somewhat. But if I was him, I would be in serious fear of my safety if I wasn't, if I was just detached and alone. And, you know, this actually did happen. He, he was assaulted. He did get a brain hemorrhage. So this other incident where that is often used to, uh, as evidence that Andy is somehow affiliated with the Proud Boys or with these, these militant conservative groups, he was outside this cider, this like anarchist cider bar and the uh, the conservative militant guys attack the anarchists who were at the bar, and mm -hmm. there's and someone got like seriously hurt, and Andy was there, and there was video of Andy sort of like before the attack, like milling around this group, and he's not really engaging with them. He's like on his phone, sort of like. I think he like nods his head a couple times, but he's just like sort of milling around. Yep. And this, and so the Portland Mercury, which is owned by the stranger, my former employer, um, published this piece as though this were evidence that Andy was like complicit with this attack. And it, the mm -hmm. video doesn't show that he has any sort of foreknowledge of what's going on. Maybe he did. I don't know, but this is not verified in this piece, but it became canon. 
Yeah, I, I watched the video and I tried to find what exactly the reporter was talking about. Uh, the reporter also relied on like uh, someone that had infiltrated the group. So it wasn't right. just the video. And the reporter uh, didn't reach out to Andy for comment. Yeah. I, I was kind of just puzzled when I watched the video. It's like, what am I, what am I supposed to look at? Uh, but even if he's like around, I don't, I don't know what exactly is incriminating uh, about that, given, given the serious safety concerns he would have just on his own. Okay, so those are the two sort of ant- big pieces of evidence against Andy No. And this app, this all happened way after the December 2018 um, protest that led to you ultimately resigning from, from, or I guess resigning, is that, do you like hands in the resignation? Okay. From John Brown Gun Club. So I wrote a piece in 2018. I wrote a piece about Andy and he was at the time, this was before all of this had happened. He had also, he had started covering these protests in Portland, but he wasn't the sort of Andy No as we know him today. Um, so I wrote this piece and it was, it was just, it was about like, the piece was basically about sort of like the irony of anti-racist protesters. It's in the headline, anti-racist protesters harass gay Asian American journalists. And it was much less about the, what happened at the John Brown gun club. But I did, um, I'm just going to read you a paragraph in the piece. No says that not a single counter protester stood up for him, although a former ACLU attorney and a member of the Puget Sound John Brown Gun Club, quote, I mean, parentheses, a far left gun group that serves as security at protest, resigned from the group this week after seeing how No was treated. So that was you. And that's how I met you. Yeah. So I don't think I even quoted you in the piece, um, but we did talk on the phone. And, um, and then we ended up like meeting up in person and becoming friends. And now you're my, now you're my anarchist friend. Sure. Yeah. And also my Muslim friend. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ex-Muslim, <laughs> but sure. We can go with Muslim. <laughs> and my ex-Muslim friend. Well, since I'm a Muslim, I'm your Muslim friend. Yes. Finally. I'm diversifying my portfolio. <laughs> Lesbian Muslim. I'm hard to come by. <laughs> um, okay. So that's how me, how we met. And first of all, what was your like basic impression of Andy at the time? I didn't know anything about him. I think I knew he wrote like vaguely anti-Muslim things, which I know you're very angry about. Uh, but to me... Very angry. And that we should say this refers to a Wall Street Journal piece that Andy wrote. We've talked about it a couple times. I'll, pu- I'll publish, the, I'll pu- post this in the show notes as well. Um, basically, Andy wrote a piece about going to London and going to these neighborhoods that had a bunch of Muslim residents and he misinterpreted some shit. Like there were signs saying like no, no drinking or something, no public intoxication. And Andy thought that was like somehow connected to Islam, but really it was just like a standard, like don't drink outside. Yeah. He, he made some serious mistakes, but to be fair, he did acknowledge that those were mistakes and, and corrected it. For what it's worth. Yeah. And, and I have to say, like, that's, it's a, that's fucking worst case scenario for a reporter. It really shows like, like, it shows bias, but also like his editor should have fucking caught that. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know anything about him. Uh, what was important to me is that he wasn't threatening anyone at the time. That's all I, that's all I knew. Okay. So this was 2018. Let's fast forward to 2020. Um, what's your impression of Andy now? Oh, wait, 2021. <laughs> What's your impression of Andy now? Oh, that's that's a tough one. Um, my overall impression is I'm going to have like some very serious uh, criticism of his reporting and his work. Uh, but overall, I think he's still a net good. Uh, and only because the stuff he covers, no one else covers. Uh, and if I had like if I had it my way, I wish he would just stick to debunking like hate crime hoaxes. 
uh, which was definitely like by far my favorite project of his because literally no one was like willing to uh, look closely at any allegation of a hate crime. Everything was kind of like very uh, credulous. It's like, oh, you got attacked because you were a part of a marginalized group. That's horrible. But no one bothered doing any follow up. Yeah, we should we should go into the details about this too. So th- there's so many sides in this podcast. This is a very layered story. So in Portland, in maybe 2019, 2018, there was a rash of quote unquote hate crimes, and nobody was reporting these hate crimes to the against like queer trans people, and nobody was reporting to these police. But these rumors were circulating, and it got really heated. Like I lived in Portland after college, and I still know a bunch of people there. And my friends on social media and businesses that I follow there were posting like, you know, call this number if you need a ride. These businesses will be open for people, for queer people or people of color. Um, you know, people were really, really paranoid about this. The Portland Mercury published these just sort of like totally credulous mm-hmm. reports of these hate crimes without like talking to the victims. There were a bunch of GoFundMes where people were making a bunch of money. And Andy looked at one of these in particular and debunked it basically or i don't know if you can say it's conclusive but yeah yeah but he and he he did like basic shit like he would call the police and like uh ask is there is there a police report of this night like he would try to do corroboration which is like what ideally what a journalist should do uh right he would try to get like like a security camera footage of these incidents uh i'm not saying those things are impossible it's just there was no basic fa- uh, fact checking at all with these types of stories. And people kept talking about this like maroon truck that was driving around because apparently one of the Proud Boys who lived across the river from Portland and Vancouver, Washington <laughs> drove a maroon truck. So it'd just be like, I would see these like a rash of Instagram posts like the maroon truck is out. It's like <laughs> Take uh, care this of generation's white van. <laughs> they're, they're coming for you. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have trouble giving you an assessment of how I feel about no specifically his work. Uh, just because I, I find it really puzzling. I don't know why he covers certain things. He makes some decisions in his reporting and in his book, which we're going to talk about, that are just completely inexplicable to me and baffling and, and extremely bad faith. And I'll give some examples later. Yeah. And apparently he was attacked again recently. So on May 28th, um, I'm reading from uh, the Willamette Week here. This is an article by Suzette Smith. Portland protesters chase, tackle, and punch someone they believe to be Andy No until he hides in the Nines Hotel. There's another article, a follow-up, that says that apparently the Denver Nuggets basketball team was in the Nines Hotel. <laughs> so a lot of content come out of Portland. Um, and so so there's video here of of what may be Andy. It looks like Andy from from photos that people posted online hiding in this hotel after he was chased by these anti-fascists. He moved to London some time ago, but he was maybe in Portland. He hasn't posted. So this was, this was May 28th. He hasn't posted. uh, We're recording this on June 1st. At this point, he hasn't posted anything for three days on Twitter. There's no mention of this, which is out of character for Andy. Um, So we don't, this hasn't been verified, but like the video and the, 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 photos to me look it looks like him or it could be his doppelganger (laughs) okay let's go into that for a second (laughs) all right so um going back to antifa's target acquisition there was a video from portland that showed well it was reported as you know protesters yell at asian man because they believe that it's andy no and it's true it wasn't andy no but if you look at the video which i think you should post in the show notes 
it's a little weird. You know, I don't have any evidence that there was any conspiracy, but if you watch the video, you see an Asian man that looks a lot like No, and he's wearing a blazer with like a shirt with no tie, and he has the same hair. Uh, and he tells like the protesters, oh, you think I'm Andy No because I'm an Asian, Asian fuck off. Very different voice, completely different person. We'll, we'll post the, uh, we'll post the yeah. audio here. I got a special Why? Who are you? Why the middle finger? What's your name? Who the fuck are you? Who are you? Why? Oh yeah. Hey, why are you? Do you here? think that I'm Andy No? Is that what you're thinking? <laughs> you racist cunt. <laughs> you wanna, would you like to see my face? Sure. But I'm fucking sick of this. This is the second time this has happened to me. The third time this has happened to me at protests. Yeah. It's like you're doing it intentionally, then. Just be, just be proud that you're not Andy. Andy, what's wrong? Yeah, just be proud no, that no, you're not I, Andy. No, no, I'm super proud that I'm not Andy. Well, but I'm really you. irritated that you cunts stand here no, and put your middle fingers in my fucking face. You're a bunch purpose. of racist cunts and if you gotta you're, stop. You're Think about Andy, why you're here. Think Andy, about why you're here. If you're not Andy, then you wouldn't be antagonizing. You know exactly what you're doing. And you wouldn't be you know exactly. Uh, they are honestly they are profiling profiling this guy. Like he looks heavier than Andy when he talks. Yep. Like he's wearing a mask, so there's that. But he doesn't like he looks like Andy. But if you if you know what Andy looks like, you wouldn't. I wouldn't mis have mistake mistaken him for Andy. Um, and th like the haircut's kind of different. I don't know. Anyway, the new video looks to me more like Andy. The haircut, even though he's wearing a mask, the, the haircut looks more like Andy. Anyway, so we don't know at this point what happened or if he's okay or we don't know. Um, but let's get to his book. So you read his book. Yes, I read his entire book. It's called Unmasked. It came out in February of this year. And I'm not an, as, as you know, like I'm not an uninterested party. I'm actually quoted in the book because I've spoken to Andy quite extensively on multiple occasions. I don't have like, you know, categorical opposition to engaging with him. And in my conversations with him, I, I tell him like my problems with his reporting. What's, um, I can say also unequivocally that despite my criticism of his work, he's never been unfair to me. He's never quoted me out of context. He's fairly accurate. Like I don't have like big problems, but as I read through his book, I, I came across like a number, a number of issues. I think the big problem is that there's a big risk of walking away with uh, misinformation if you have less than stellar familiarity with the uh, events that he's uh, describing. So I, the good stuff is, I mean, like the, the praise that I'll give him is that he is very uh, meticulous about his sourcing. Uh, he has like 400 footnotes, an entire sources section and like an index. And I've double checked like a lot of his citations. Nothing is ever like, you know, false or completely made up. There's some examples that I think come close. Structurally, it's a, a string of kind of anecdotes of Antifa-related violence. He tries to kind of weave it together into like a meta-narrative, ostensibly with the goal of kind of impressing upon the raider that this is kind of like an existential threat to uh, this country and like Western civilization as a whole. Uh, but the big, big problem that he runs into is that Antifa is basically negligible in terms of its impact on a national scale. So most of the events that he covers are really just kind of like petty crimes and assaults uh, that would never make the national news and maybe not even like a local blotter. It's only because it's like tied to Antifa that it gets like kind of boosted onto a national platform. Uh, for a long time, like the defenders of Antifa had this common refrain, which is that Antifa never killed anyone, which was actually true for a while up until uh, August 29, 2020, when, uh, what was his name? Rhinel 
Michael Reinal shot and killed a, a Trump supporter like outside of a, outside of a rally. And in that case, it's pretty clear that there was a close nexus between uh, Reinal's Antifa affiliation and uh, the murder. Uh, he has like a string of, you know, getting into physical altercations with conservatives at prior protests. Uh, he basically admitted as much when he was interviewed by Vice. Uh, I think the circumstances around his death are by, by law enforcement in uh, Lacey, Washington are extremely suspicious. Uh, but if you want to tie a killing to Antifa ideology, I have no objection to, you know, marking that one up. That seems to be a clear example of that. But you're left with one. You're left with one murder that you can tie to to Antifa ideology. This is this is only true if you don't consider corporations people because they have destroyed <laughs> many a Starbucks window. Sure, you can say that they've you know destroyed uh, they've committed the property damage, and maybe you can even say you know they've only killed one person, but not for want of trying, based on like the multiple serious assaults that they've been involved in. That's all fair, but you, you, the body count is still at one, and you you know that like no realizes that this is like a big issue with his thesis and he tries so fucking hard to like stretch out the like the thinnest of the most tenuous of connections to as many incidents as he can and just like outline one example uh i know it's hard to keep track of all the mass shootings but in 2019 there were two mass shootings that occurred within 24 hours of each other it was the el paso uh walmart shooting that killed 23 people and then there was a Dayton, Ohio shooting that killed nine people. And that happened within an hour, uh, 24 hours of each other. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So with the El Paso shooting, the guy posted on 8chan. He posted a manifesto and he said, you know, he complained about uh, Hispanics replacing the white race. He told detectives that he was specifically targeting Mexicans. There's no question that he was motivated by white supremacy or at least like his affiliation to white supremacy. And he killed 23 people. Uh, by contrast, the Dayton, Ohio shooting, even though it happened, you know, almost two years ago, law enforcement still has no idea like what exactly what the motivation was. They're sort of like maybe investigating like some incel affiliation. No, like almost feels, seems like devastated that he can't get like more on this guy because uh, he spends multiple pages like scrutinizing every single like like and follow and retweet of the Dayton, Ohio shooter. And it's clear he was a big fan of Antifa. I think he was a Bernie supporter. He even showed up to Antifa related protests uh, carrying firearms. Uh, he definitely had an affiliation, but that's not the same thing as saying that the crime, the mass shooting was Antifa motivated. Yeah, there's a big, big gap uh, between that. Right. I mean... The motives for people's shootings consistently get misrepresented in the media. This happened with the Pulse nightclub shooting, which I think probably yep. 10 people out of 10 would say was motivated by, motivated by homophobia. And subsequent um, court proceedings and reporting found that the shooter, Omar Mateen, didn't know he was at a gay bar. Right. But with the, with the Pulse nightclub shooting, you can still say that it was motivated by an Islamist uh, uh, affiliation. Maybe, maybe not anti-gay, but definitely Islamist. Yeah, for sure. Um, which is not our side of Muslim, of Islam. We're very yes, friendly yes, completely different. Yeah. Um, so, but but this gets to gets to my sort of the crux of my disagreement with Andy is that I think that he catastrophizes Antifa the way that a lot of the left catastrophizes white supremacist groups and the the way a lot of conservatives not that long ago were catastrophizing Islam. Yeah, but regard regardless of kind of like the overall scale, if we're only looking at the these like 
tiny movements, white supremacists and Antifa. Uh, if we only narrow that, we still have like that, like a big gap in terms of the degrees of scale between those sure, two. Sure. And that's a problem that No has that ha- he, he hasn't overcome in his book. So what other criticism do you have of No's book? Sure. Uh, so in his attempt to kind of lay claim to every body as somewhat affiliated to Antifa, he has an extremely hypersensitive uh, dog whistle radar. Uh, and Katie, I know you're Muslim, so this <laughs> I think this mm-hmm. example will resonate with you. Uh, but you know Keith Ellison, right? Uh, yeah. He's, uh, at the time that I'm going to talk about, he was uh, Minnesota's, one of uh, Minnesota's uh, congressmen, uh, and now he's uh, its attorney general. He was the first Muslim uh, congressman, I believe. And, you know, of course, like there was a lot of news when he swore on the Quran uh, as he took the oath of office. As we all should. Yes. Mashallah. Mm-hmm. Mashallah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he posted, uh, Keith Ellison posted a tweet where he's kind of like posing with this book written by, uh, uh, I think it's Mark Bray, uh, about anti-fascism, specifically about Antifa. I never read the book. I think it's just like a gushing praise of of the movement. And he posted this uh, a picture of himself and with the tweet, with the caption, uh, this book strikes fear in the heart of Donald Trump. Uh, now, when you hear the phrase strikes fear in the heart of, what does that make you think of? Like nothing. It's like a meaningless, like, strike, like it makes you scared. It's a, a very, like, it's a cliche, a trope. According to No, it's a jihadist dog whistle. Oh, wow. And specifically, he claims that it's a reference to Quran chapter 8, <laughs> verse 12. Uh, and he, he quotes this on, on page 201. He says that this verse is used often quoted by Islamic State and other jihadist groups to justify terrorism. And the specific quote that he claims the verse is, is, quote, I will strike fear into the hearts of disbelievers, end quote. Now, as a Muslim, you know that uh, you probably memorize the Quran by now. You know that you're uh, like Muslims do not like translating the Quran. They, they see it as a holy text that loses its meaning when it gets translated into other languages. Uh, so you always have to look at the original Arabic and there's kind of like a bunch of competing translations. I looked up this verse because I wanted to know like what he was talking about. Uh, the two translations I was able to find, like the most popular ones, none of them say strike fear into the heart of like the, they say cast horror into the hearts and cast terror into the hearts. So I was trying to find out the exact specific wording that no uh, came up with. And here's where it gets weird. So if you plug in quote, I will strike fear into the hearts of disbelievers End quote, you can, you can do this if you want, you can tell me what comes up. Wait, I strike fear. I will strike fear into the hearts of disbelievers. Unmasked inside Antifa's radical plan to destroy democracy. This is the next one is Reddit book review unmasked. <laughs> the third one unmasked inside Antifa's radical plan to defeat democ- democracy. And then there's one that is, I guess, and there's that's it. That Reddit post is is by me. Oh wow! Yeah. So literally, this this quote does not exist anywhere on the internet. So I only have two explanations. Andy No made up this verbiage, and he made it up specifically to to pattern match to Keith Ellison's vocabulary, or he found some obscure Quranic translation that has no presence at all on the internet and made that connection. Now, he could have just concluded that, you know, it was just like an innocent English idiom, strike fear in the, in the heart of, sure. is used by multiple people. But instead, he specifically says 
that quote was not only chilling because of like the praise for the Antifa book, but chilling and disturbing because of the jihadist dog whistle that he identified as as such. Okay, so there's not a huge difference between fear and horror though, right? No, but the the point is Keith Ellison was very specific. He said strikes fear into the heart. Well, isn't that the, I'm not going to bother defending this. You you did the detective work. I think you can be biased and have an agenda and still I don't know, not mislead your readers. I mean, he's also been the subject of so much journalistic malpractice that maybe he has gotten the message that journalistic <laughs> malpractice is just fine. Well, the hardest part about evaluating his work is that he's extremely opaque about his own philosophy. I don't really know what he stands for uh, when he chooses to report things. Uh, like if you look at his Twitter feed, it's just kind of like full of random local news. I mean, I put that in quotes. Like he posts like a fight involving black people at a Chuck E. Cheese uh, or he he posts like a mugshot of a black guy that's suspected of having shot three people, but he doesn't mention that it's like a former police detective. And I, you know, if I see his tweet, uh, his feed, I'm just like, what? Why? Why is this? Why are you covering this? I, I don't understand what you're implying. And I read his entire book, and I I can't come away with like a coherent philosophy uh, behind the or ethos behind his actions. Uh, there's an example I came across. Uh, this man was killed in Atlanta by police at a Wendy's drive-thru. His name is uh, Rayshard Brooks. Uh, this happened, I, I think, during the George Floyd uh, protests and caused a, a giant uproar. When No writes about it, uh, he says, quote, Brooks was made into the next BLM and Antifa martyr, even though he had an extensive criminal history. Uh, <laughs> he puts that even though, and I, I, he maybe he thinks that it's like, gives a ton of explanation, but I, I don't, I have no idea what he's trying to say. Is he implying that like having a criminal history means that it's like impossible to be mistreated by police? I, I think that's what it seems like, but he doesn't, he doesn't explain like what he means. Uh, he, I mean, this is kind of like in line with his credulity when it comes to reporting on law enforcement actions. I don't think he's ever uh, said anything bad about police or criticized or, or pushed back in, in any fashion uh, and it doesn't show up in, in his book. So I think like an innocent reader that doesn't really know this topic is going to walk away with a, like a severely distorted and maybe confused uh, impression of the social dynamics at play. Thank you, Yassine, so much for this look into uh, the world of anarchy and of Andy No. For patrons, uh, Yassine's going to stay on a little bit longer, and we're going to talk about Willem Van Spronson, who you may have heard of because he attempted to firebomb an ICE uh, prison in Washington State, and he was also a good friend of our guests. And if you have not joined the Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. Uh, where can the people find you? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't really have much of a social media presence except for uh, Reddit. I'm the moderator of the Mott. Uh, so Scott Alexander, there's a kind of like a semi-official political uh, discussion subreddit called the Mott, T-H-E-M-O-T-T-E. And uh, the unofficial semi-official podcast is called the Bailey uh, it's, um, it's a place where you can have civil discussion with a variety of uh, viewpoints, which is kind of like my own pet project. Uh, and, um, it's basically like a higher IQ, uh, much more boring version of blocked and reported. <laughs> how could, how could that even be possible? 
<laughs> uh, if you want recommendations for like a good introduction, the last episode on two arms and a head is a good one. And maybe the banality of uh, cat girls, which is on super stimuli, <laughs> if you're interested in that. Uh, what you, The other thing you can do is uh, go on a crime spree in and around the, the Pacific Northwest, and maybe I'll be assigned your attorney. One could only be so lucky. We will put links to that in the show notes. And thank you so much, my anarchist brother, for coming on the show. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. All right, Jesse, what do you think of Yassine? He is such an interesting guy, and he comes across as a very yeah. good guy. I like want to. I want to get a beer with him if he's a drinker. Um, just very like thoughtful and able to. I think it's hard to like have sort of tribal allegiances, which he clearly does. Well, or at least he did with with the John Brown group. Well, also like, you know, he he takes Andy No as like a flawed human being, not as some caricature. Yeah, he's a thoroughly decent guy, and he just has his background is really interesting. Like an ACLU lawyer who's a defense attorney who also has been part of this militant leftist group. Um, I I really enjoy him. He's super smart. Uh, I I recommend people check out his podcast as well. Okay, so since Justine and I talked. We have an update to the Andino story. So as we mentioned during the interview, at the time we recorded this, we recorded this on Wednesday. Andy had not yet published any sort of statement. He had been, he'd been gone off of Twitter for several days, which is out of character for him. And then on Wednesday night, he released a statement. I'm going to read you a few of these tweets. No journalist in America should ever face violence for doing his or her job. Yet on Friday, May 28th, Antifa tried to kill me once again while I was reporting on the ongoing protests and riots in Portland, Oregon for a new chapter of my book, Unmasked, Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. I was chased, attacked, and beaten by a mass mob, baying for my blood. Had I not been able to shelter wounded and bleeding inside a hotel while they beat the doors and windows like animals, there is no doubt in my mind I would not be here today. Their words, like their actions, speak for themselves. Antifa wants me dead because I document what they want to stay hidden. The attacks against me and threats on my life are retribution for my work as a journalist, recording the tactics and true ideology of an extremist clandestine movement that relies on deception and regards the truth as the greatest threat of all. Um, okay, there's there's a lot more. We'll post a link to this in the show notes. He attaches photos. He said that he went to the ER and there are photos of... Um, of his, like, his knee is bloody. It looks like he burst some blood vessels in his eye. There's some sort of contusion on his hand and on his side. Like, pretty surface injuries, but still, like, he was chased and beaten in the streets. Yeah, and I I don't want to repeat everything we've already said, but, like, um, a lot of the same old justifications for why this is okay have popped up. I've seen some in some cases, like respectable people making insane claims. Uh, you know, one of them is he's not a journalist, which implies like it, like it's okay to beat citizens. That one always confuses me. I guess what the I I guess what they're trying to the picture they're trying to paint, and I, I saw a professional journalist refer to him as a street brawler. They're trying to paint him as someone who is an active aggressor. So like he's punching people, we just punched him back. Which is completely false, and as you guys talked about in the interview, it relies on these just ridiculous distortions of past events. I sort of agree with with uh, the guests that like he's he's uncovered some stuff other people haven't uncovered. That's useful. The hate crime stuff. Overall, I don't really agree with this project, but that's that's miles away from thinking that it's at all acceptable to assault him or that he is an active aggressor in this. It's just insane. Right. And I do think there's something sort of ironic about the fact that there are journalists who talk all the time about how 
you know, bullying online is is like deeply harmful and you will never see them stay, say anything about the fact that this guy is attacked for doing his job. Now, should Andy have gone to this rally dressed like Antifa and tried to infiltrate this group? No, that was stupid. For his own sake, that was stupid. Is Do I think there's anything journalistically wrong with that? Not no, not at all. And I saw like there's this guy David Newert who's a, a writer in Seattle who writes about about right wing extremist, and he said, he, "Let me read you this tweet: The people who approvingly identify characters like Andy No and the other Antifa doxer Antifa doxers journalists cough Greenwald cough just conveniently overlook the fact that these clowns openly violate every basic ten- tenet of journalism journalism ethics." And what he's talking about here is the fact that Andy put on a disguise and tried to infiltrate this group. Do you think that David Newert would have any trouble with a left winger infiltrating a white ring group, a left wing journalist, or let's say a, a journalist infiltrating a, uh, a a giant factory farm? Like there are certain circumstances in which it is appropriate to infiltrate groups. Do I think that Andy should have done this? No fucking way. He has a target on his back. It was very like ill-advised, but it's like, unless you, I don't understand how it, it would justify any of this. He's not, he didn't, he didn't act in a smart way. Um, but I, it's just, it should be the easiest red line imaginable. Like feel free to mock the guy, yell at him, try to find him, but, but don't assault. It's just so fucking demoralizing that people are too cowed to say, don't assault Andy. No, it's just the minimum standard for human decency. This is a tweet from Lindsay Berstein. They attacked him for being Andy No, but he's begging the question whether he was attacked for being a journalist as opposed to being a notorious street brawler who was dressed for a brawl at the time. What the fuck is she talking I, about? I, so she's saying, uh, yeah, I mean, that was the street brawling reference. And I, I, yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. She, Lindsay's like a respected journalist and a smart person. I just, I completely disagree with that. Yeah, does. I don't know. I just get frustrated with this I, just because I really do think violence has to be a red line. I also, I just saw a tweet. A prominent Portland activist says that when Andy No joined the protest last week, No tried to hand him a firework and encouraged him to throw it. This is not the behavior of a journalist. I hate to say this. I'm not going to take anyone say so on this at this point. This is the group that has been like making shit up. I don't, A, I don't think that's true. B, I'm, I'm not going to accept it as true because people have been lying about the dude for a long time now. Maybe it was the Asian doppelganger who looks like Andy now. <laughs> dude, this, that fucking audio of presumably, I assume these are white people, like accosting an Asian guy who looks like these are, these are militant anti-racists. Anyway, this whole thing is just very depressing. And he is like a um he attracts so much attention and, and just like we spend so much time talking about Andy. No, but that's because like he keeps getting fucking assaulted. If you don't want to give him oxygen, don't assault him. But but the sort of these Antifa people in Portland have no tactics, no plan. They they're just they're LARPers. They don't actually have a strategy for how to affect like accomplish their goals. I think this is part of the critique your your guest was talking about. Yeah, if they wanted to get Andy No to shut up, the best thing they could do is stop antagonizing him. Daniel Walter is a, a reporter for the Inlander in, in Washington State and Alt Weekly in Spokane. He had a good point. He wrote on Twitter, Andy No profits off his own victimization isn't a defense of assaulting Andy No. It's yet another reason not to assault Andy No. And he's right. Like, 
protesting his protesting pals for selling his book online, not even in the store, beating him up. All this does. I'm sure I'm sure all of this was terrifying for Andy as it would be for anybody, but all this does is make him a victim and it makes you look like the bad guys because you're the bad guys. I'm going to look I'm going to see how his book is doing on Amazon right now. Give me a sec. Yeah, Andy's book is I, I mean I I haven't been tracking this whole time, but it's now back in the top 1000, which is incredibly hard to crack on Amazon. So, uh this I, I would be shocked if those two events weren't connected. Good work, guys. You did it again. Uh, do we have anything else to say about this other than that it's depressing and that I hope we don't have to talk about Andy Doe much longer? I think that's it, at least for this week. All right. Uh, as always, you can email us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. Our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blockedandreported. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we're still, we haven't fully gotten a couple responses. We're still potentially open to doing an advice show at some point. If you send us an MP3 of your quandary and we will try to puzzle through it, we would be the first show that has ever done anything like this. Uh, block reported podcast at gmail.com, uh, merch barpod.org. Katie, what is the most important thing for people to sign up for? We have a Patreon. If you go to patreon.org slash blocked and reported and give us five Patreon.com, Katie. What did I say? Org. Oh. If you go to patreon.com slash blocked and reported for just $5 a month, you can get at least three extra episodes of this podcast every month along with some other really good shit. We're about to record a Patreon that I'm very excited about. It's about an unhinged off the rails interview uh, at the podcast Femswainers between Danielle Crittenden and Nancy Jo Sales. This one's going to be fun. I'm I'm giddily excited for this because I had forgotten, but I had had a run-in with Nancy Jo Sales in 2015 when I criticized one of her articles on online dating. And in my view, she's a bit of an alarmist on how it's changing us. Uh, so I this let me jump back in time to 2015 and see when an entirely different group of people were unhingedly mad at me. So that was a fun trip down memory lane. We're now a history podcast. We are an internet, recent internet history podcast. Katie, anything else? Patreon.com slash Blocked and Reported. Mm-hmm. Not that org. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, Katie, if you drag me back onto Twitter, I will fucking kill you. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you're tempted to beat any five, six Gaijin men in the streets, at least check their IDs first. <laughs>